And God spoke all those words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Thanks. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance uh, now to come before your word. Uh, we know that apart from your work, uh, we would not be able to know you, and yet you have given us your word, and so we pray that we would receive it humbly, uh, that we would be open where you intend to speak into our lives. Father, you have uh, given us an incredible gift in your revealed word. God, so many times we seek your will, and yet we don't open it, and so we pray now uh, that your will would be made known to us, your revealed will here in your word and that we would be receptive, that we would be willing uh, to hear what you have to say to us. God, I thank you for uh, this team that just led us in music, for their gifts, their talents. God, what a, what a privilege it is to be able to sing with them and for uh, us to be able to sing together here. And we don't want to take that for granted. God, what a blessing it is to come uh, and to be able to worship together. Thank you for this chance now. Thank you for our kids, for their teachers, uh, for all that are teaching your word across this building. And across the world, world, God, may where, wherever your word goes out, may it accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think uh, I can speak for most of us when I say that generally uh, we, don't like, we don't like having to obey the rules. Am I right? Like, we're okay with, you know, good rules, but if, if, a, rule, if a rule is going to, uh, I don't know, restrict us or restrain us in any way, we, we're going to ask some questions, aren't we? we? We probably generally approach rules as, uh, you know, not, not something we want to be a part of. Our, our gut instinct is we don't, I don't want to be told what to do. As a kid, you know, you, you, you learn that you have to kind of play along. There's certain rules. Don't stand on the table. Don't eat too much candy. You got to go to school. You got to wake up. And so as, as we get older and we enjoy a little more freedoms, we we like that. Yeah, there's always going to be some rules, but the less rules, generally, we think, the better. And we're, we're okay with that. As we get older, uh, we, we start to think, you know, hey, the speed limit, is that a rule or just a suggestion? You know, red light, yellow light, like there's a pink in the middle that if you just kind of really hurry on through, we think, hey, it's, it's okay, you know. Uh, jaywalks, you know, crosswalks, that's just a suggestion. If it's clear, I can just go here or, or whatever else it may be. Taxes, ah, I mean, if we don't have to pay it, do we really want to pay it? We, we, don't like, we don't like those kinds of rules. They just seem restrictive, and, and we're not really a, a big fan of that. And so we come to the Bible, sometimes we kind of take that attitude about, eh, I don't really like rules, and we say, hey, there's some rules here. Do I, do I really need to listen to those? You know, we think rules, they're kind of a bad idea. I mean, they're, either, they're not as bad as paying taxes, but, I mean, still... We don't want to be rule people, and so we come to the Bible and we think, I don't know about rules, even famous rules like the Ten Commandments. We think, uh, I don't want to be judged. I don't want anybody judging me. You know, don't, don't judge me. And so I don't want you to be thinking too much about applying rules to my life. I'll do my life. You do my life. But you do your life. So Plus, we generally think, I may not be able to, you know, you think, I may not be able to quote all ten of them, but I'm a good person. So I probably am keeping at least the majority of the Ten Commandments most of the time, so they, I don't really need to worry too much about them. And on top of that, if you are a church person or been around the Bible a little bit, 
you, you kind of have in the back of your mind, we're, we're saved by grace, right? We're saved by faith. So why would the Ten Commandments even matter to us? I mean, they're good to teach our kids, you know, so they'll be, you know, good people. And there's probably some catchy songs that they could learn the Ten Commandments. But now that we're grown, now that we know something about faith, now that we know something about Jesus, can't we just leave the Ten Commandments? You know what? While we're at it, let's just leave the whole Old Testament. We'll just leave it behind. Right? We don't say that out loud, of course, because that sounds bad. I mean, it's the Bible. But in the back of our minds, I think that stirs a little bit. We, we think we'd be much better off to spend most of our time just talking about God's love. What, what do rules have to do with, with who we are as Christians, this side of the cross and the resurrection? Why, why would we even worry with the Ten Commandments? And on top of that, if you need one more reason to shoot down this image of a new sermon series I'm putting in front of you, I'm just trying to give you all the reasons you can shoot this down. If you need, if you need one more, aren't they pretty simple and straightforward? Like, don't steal. Check. Got it. Don't lie. Okay, I got it. Like, what else needs to be explained about the Ten Commandments? That's all fair and good. But if you take God's Word seriously... I wonder if you take all those thoughts and attitudes about rules and commandments and then compare them to, way, to the way the Bible itself actually talks about God's law. Take, for instance, the very first psalm. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man who is, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And remember, when Psalm 1 was written, the New Testament hadn't happened yet. So it wasn't, we, we are right to take that and apply it to all of Scripture. But when the psalmist wrote that, he wasn't thinking about, you know, our favorite passage in the book of John or, or, or Jesus walking on water or something like that. He was talking about the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, which centerpiece is the Ten Commandments. As he's writing this and thinking about his joy and his delight and what gives him just excitement, he's thinking about the commandments. Or take Psalm 19 that, that Caitlin read just a minute ago. The law of the Lord is perfect. And verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. So take that. Like the this, this psalmist, he says, If you gave me a stack of gold bricks over here and God's law over here, the Ten Commandments being the centerpiece there, and I had to only have one, he said, Every time I'm picking God's law. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? God's law over gold. You say, well, okay, maybe there's something to this. But even then, that's just Old Testament. What about, you know, hey, we're this side, we're this side of the resurrection. I mean, we've got Jesus now. Isn't, isn't things, aren't things different now? Isn't it different? Well, there's certainly that we have a, a more full understanding of God's redemptive plan. Certain things in that way have changed in the sense that we better understand it. But God himself has not changed. Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. change. Psalm 102, 25 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and of the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. You are the same, for your years have no end. Or James 1, 17, which is in the New Testament, The Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. We change. God doesn't change. He's exactly the same as He's always been yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. He's always been perfectly holy. He's always been perfectly loving. 
He is no different than he was in the Old Testament when he gave the Ten Commandments. So if we come to the Ten Commandments, and we've got some kind of, huh, not so sure about this, but then we come to God's Word and the way it talks about God's law, it at least has to make us say, there's more going on here. There's something more to the law than just some, some old rules that applied to a faraway place and a faraway group of people. Sure, the kind of the common thought is, okay, Old Testament bad, God's just angry, New Testament, God's grace. But if we take what the Bible says about God, that's not true. It's not true. There has to be more going on with the Ten Commandments. I'm convinced that most people, including myself, I, I'm learning, most of us seriously misunderstand God's law and especially God's commandments, these Ten Commandments. And what I think what we do is that we, we think the thing that, the, that rules and, and regulations, they, they are, they're just a barrier to a relationship between us and God. Having rules, having, having strict things, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't help us. That, that separates us. We think, I, I, I can live how I want. I've got God's grace. I don't need God's law. But I think in reality, we need to understand that the truth, that the thing that separates us from God isn't the law. It's our sin. The law reveals our sin, but the law itself does not separate us from God. Our sin does. Our American Christianity, kind of our modern version of Christianity, is to be very independent, very free. I want to make my decisions for myself. I want to be my own person. I want to do things my way. And that can become pride that separates us from God. Our sin is the barrier to our relationship with Him. And when we become tolerant of our own sin, that's what keeps us from a relationship with God. It's not the law. It's our sin. If we're okay with being just who we are and saying, I'm good the way I am, then we are, we are separating ourselves from God. We are not walking in relationship with Him. And that goes directly against God's own word. If we say, I just got grace, I don't need the law, I can just, I can just, I just, I just know He forgives me and I can do what I want. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. We have died to the sin, died to sin, how can we still live in it? If we've experienced God's grace, then we will be far more concerned with killing our sin than living lives that are about doing what we want. That should be the priority. We should be about killing our sin, not just living how we want to live. And it's pretty hard to follow God's will and God's way if we don't know God's commands. So I, I, I think, you may be skeptical, so I may not have convinced you yet, but I think these, these commands, God's ten, command, ten Commandments, are well worth our study. I think if you're willing to dive into God's law with us, if you're willing to understand who this, what this is about and where this came from and why they were given the way they are, I, I believe we will love God more and love our sin less. That, that's my goal, I think, if I had to just put it in one sentence, about our study, studying the Ten Commandments. I, I want you to love God more and love your sin less. So that's worth a series to me. It's worth a series to me. If you need any more evidence of how great the Ten Commandments are, then let's just kind of see the, the context of where these came from. Maybe if you know a little bit about the Bible, you know a little bit about the Exodus story. But it's worth remembering just how incredible this period was in God's redemptive history. God had come, brought His people through the, na the, the nation of Israel, through the son Joseph, into the land of Egypt, and things were great for them for a while. 
But then there arose another Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and he began to enslave God's people. And for 400 years, God's people under the nation of Israel, all the descendants of Jacob and the 12 tribes, they grew and grew and grew. But they were all under slavery under the Egyptian nation. And Pharaoh and all his people were putting the Israelites to work. And eventually God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh over and over again, let my people go that they may serve me. Sometimes Pharaoh thinks, okay, sure. And then he changes his mind. And so 10 times God sends a plague each time a form of judgment on the nation of Israel. And each of those was directly going against one of the Egyptian so-called gods, like one who's, who's in their kind of mythology, they, they thought the, the Nile River was the bloodstream of one of the, the gods of Israel, I mean, the gods of Egypt. They gave life to the nation of, of Egypt. And so what did God do in the very first plague? He turns the entire Nile to blood. Over and over again, He judges the people of Egypt for their wickedness, and he brings his people out eventually after the 10th plague, the people of Israel, out of the nation of Egypt. And they go not just, not just uh, um, you know, seek, sneaking out, but God, the people of Egypt are so ready for them to go. They give them gold and jewels like, please, here, go. We need you to go because they're struggling. Of course, then Pharaoh changes his mind. And so the hundreds of thousands of Israelites have, have just left Egypt. And Pharaoh decides, no, I'm going to go take them back. So he sends his entire army to chase them. The people of Israel have their heels on the Red Sea and they're watching the, one of the greatest armies of modern day chase after them. And they cry out to God like, why did you bring us out here to die? They turn around and by Moses' leadership, God parts the waters of the Red Sea. And hundreds of thousands of people cross through a sea on dry land to make it to the other side. The Egyptian army says, great, we'll do the same thing. They get in the middle of the sea. God brings the water back and washes away the army, bringing his people out to freedom. For three more months, God's people begin to make their way to the place that God had called them to go. He had called them out to serve and to worship their God. The people of Israel didn't do so great along the way. They kept grumbling and complaining, not sure about this God and what he has done. But eventually brings them to the foot of the mountain, to Mount Sinai. And when they're there, they had been following this pillar of cloud by, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then God's presence comes to rest on Mount Sinai in an awe-inspiring sight. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of the hundreds of thousands of people camped out at the base of this mountain. And the mountain is shaking because the thunder and the lightning and the cloud is making it roar. God tells Moses to tell his people, don't touch the mountain because you will surely die. And the people are like, we weren't going to touch it anyway. That is terrifying. It was just an incredible sight. God calls Moses up into the mountain to hear his word. This is kind of a, a crescendo moment. It's all been leading up to this. They were coming out to worship. They're coming, preparing to meet with God. And so God brings, him up to the, uh, brings Moses up to the mountain and he begins to speak. What you, what's he going to start with? What's, it, what's, he gonna, what's the first thing he's going to say out of his mouth? Is it, is it you people? Y'all are just so evil and wicked. And I'm going to get that wickedness out of you one way or the other. It, maybe, maybe he starts with, you better get your act together. Or you, you, better, you better, better clean up your act. Or, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe he says, you are just so great. I just, I just love you, Israel. You are just such good people. No, he didn't start either one of those ways. He starts with something very different. He starts with this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
He doesn't start with you anything. The great crescendo moment where God's people finally get to hear the voice of God, God starts with God, just like He should have. Because God's Word, God's story, God's redemption, our lives are not about us first. They, all of this is all about God. God starts with who He is and what He has done. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He starts with who He is and what He has done. For many of us, this should radically transform how we view the Ten Commandments. God's first words were not you. God's words, first words were not me. God's first words were God. I am the Lord your God. Many of us view the Ten Commandments as boiled down to this. Keep these rules and God will like you. Keep these rules and you will have the favor of God. If you can check off 10 out of 10, then God will like you. That's how we think of the Ten Commandments. But that's not where they start. It's not, not the point of them at all. God starts with God. If you come to God's law, the Bible, the Old Testament, in any of this, thinking, I've got to measure up if God's going to find favor with me, if, if I'm going to find favor with God, then I want you to hear the good news of Exodus 20. As simply to put it, verse 2 comes before verse 3. And here's what I mean by that. Verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. He comes first. So here's what I mean. Keep God's law. Yes, please keep God's law. But keep God's law in response to God's salvation, not to earn God's salvation. Keep God's law in response to God's salvation, not to earn God's salvation. As we read Exodus, especially here in verse 20, you, you can't miss this. If you could slow down enough to, to, to hear what he actually says, you have to see he acted first. God acted first. His grace is what came first. He acts and he does the first move before he calls us to obedience. God carried his people to freedom. He liberated them from slavery. He brought them out of bondage. Salvation has happened. And then he says, follow me. And if we can keep that in that order, we'll keep his law in response to his salvation, not to earn it. God's word starts with reminding them what had just happened. And what he tells them is, remember, this is not how the last four or five, six months have gone. God did not show up in Egypt and say, hey, Israel, hey, you haven't been paying attention to me. Here's the commandments. And if you keep all ten perfectly, I will bring you out of Egypt. But you better pay attention. You better watch what you're doing. Because if you don't keep it, I'm not coming to save you. It's not how it happened. God saved them, and then He gave them the law. God acted first. He brought the salvation first, and then He called them to obedience. God delivered them, and then called them to follow Him. Well, what did the nation of Israel do in Egypt to deserve their deliverance? Why, why did they merit this incredible act of salvation from God? Was it the people of Israel? You know, they just were really hardworking people. They, they you know, the, the Pharaoh was a, was a terrible slave driver, but they worked hard, and they got their stuff done, and on top of that, they had good attitudes. And they, No, I mean, maybe that, all that's true, but that's not why God saved them. God saved them because He's God. And he had made a promise to his people and said, yes, you're going down to Egypt and I will bring you back to the land of Canaan. 
after hundreds of years. He had promised them, and he kept his promise. It had nothing to do with how holy the people of Israel were. And you know why that's really good news? Because you and I have not done a single thing to earn God saving us either. If we were dependent upon our actions for us to be good enough for God to come and show us His love, we'd never experience it, would it? You see, when we look back to the Ten Commandments, we may think boring, old, laws, whatever. This is a pattern of the Gospel, even in the Ten Commandments. The God is this, our God, the one true God, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. And that same pattern of the Gospel that, that you and I know, if you know the Lord, is right here in the Ten Commandments. The Exodus is not the last time that God would rescue a people out of bondage sheerly by His grace. That's not the last time. It would happen a lot more times, actually. But then it would happen in the most important way when God would send His Son, Jesus. And He did something very similar. He rescued a people who were very far from God, a people who had done nothing to merit salvation. And He rescued them out of slavery, out of captivity, out of bondage. And it was a far worse bondage than just the bondage of Pharaoh and all that He made the people of Israel do. The bondage that Jesus came to save us from was the bondage of Satan, the bondage of sin, the bondage of death. And were it not for Christ's salvation, we would have no way of escaping that on our own. We would have no way to get out of Egypt, no way to get out of our sin, were it not for God's saving work. He didn't come because of our holiness. He didn't come because we had earned His salvation. He came because He had made a promise. That God had made a promise that He would send His Son, a Messiah, to save the world. And God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. Jesus came and He brought salvation, deliverance from bondage, deliverance from slavery, and He did it surely by His grace. If we see His heart, then it transforms how we see His commandments. It transforms why we would want to keep them, why these are good news. We don't want to keep His law to earn our salvation. We can't. We could never do that. We could never merit God's salvation. We keep His law in response to His salvation. As God's children, He invites us to receive His grace and then to follow Him. We can't come to God by earning our salvation, but that was never the goal anyway. And, and that is such a common misunderstanding of God's rules. And, and we all fall prey to it. This is a, a huge temptation I face. I, I want to, to be good enough today to preach good enough sermons, to be good enough husband, to be a good enough uh, father to my kids. I want to be good enough to where God says, good job. I, I like you now. I didn't like you yesterday, but I like you today. But that's not how God's favor works. Amen. Praise God it doesn't work that way. It's the cross and that's it. The cross and that's it. Many times we associate the law with people like the Pharisees of the New Testament. If you know the story of the Pharisees and how they were always fighting with Jesus, these were guys who seemed to keep it all together. They, when it came to tithing, they even tithed out of their spice cabinet. <laughs> the, the mint and dill and rue, they made sure that even 10% of that, they gave it to God. Man, weren't these guys holy guys? They, kept, they even tithed out of their spice cabinet. That's impressive. They did it all for a very wrong motivation, though. And God knew their heart. Jesus knew their heart as He walked with them. The Pharisees, we, we think of, hey, if, if I'm going to be a, a strict rule keeper, then I'll, I'll be, that'll just make me like a Pharisee. But the Pharisees didn't love God. They didn't love the law. They just loved themselves. And so they tried one form of self-salvation, which is trying to clean themselves up on the outside so that people will think highly of them and they'll get their way. 
They'll get the applause of people. They'll get whatever other accolades. And Jesus knew their heart. And he knew that they were far from God. Legalism is a temptation. We've got to be careful. We're talking about Ten Commandments. You could absolutely obey the Ten Commandments for all the wrong reasons. And it's just out of this. Putting sal- we got, we understand where does salvation come from? It doesn't come from keeping the law. We are saved by grace. And because God gr- saved us by grace, we want to follow Him. Legalism, I, I found a great um, definition from John Piper. He said, uh, it's, it's a job description for how to earn the wages of salvation. Legalism is trying to say, this is my job description. If, I'm, if I keep all these ten, I get to the end, I can say ten out of ten, then I get salvation. That's legalism. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. But there's a much better way of viewing God's law. We, we want to try to please God with the things that we're doing. But God's pleasure, His love comes for us, from us to us from the cross and the cross alone. Many times if we try to keep the law when we, on our good days, we're saying, look God, see, I, I did this, and so aren't you happy with me? Or on our bad days, we say, ah, I, I'm in total despair. God could, God's never going to love me because I can never measure up. We go back and forth with ping pong between pride and despair when we're basing our lives, on, basing our, God's view of us on the law. But if we see our, our law keeping as a response to salvation, it changes it. And instead, the law can be a way that we can enjoy a relationship with God. These laws, these Ten Commandments, are, are a very important part in God's relationship with His people in the Old Testament. He was establishing a covenant relationship with His people. In the Old Testament, lots of covenants show up, and the, the nations around Israel made covenants, these you know, promises between one nation and another about how they're going to respond. So this was a covenant, but it was a covenant that was unique because this was a covenant with the Creator of the world. And God had made this special, unique way for us to have a relationship with Him. And so He put some rules in place to make that relationship flourish. And we balk at that. We don't like the idea of rules. But again, God saved us apart from us keeping any rules. Now, in order to walk with Him, He has put some rules in place. And if you think about it, every relationship we have has some rules, doesn't it? it, it we may not have written them down, but if you've got a friendship, there's some unwritten rules about the way you talk to one another, the way you communicate with one another, the things you say and you don't say, and you may mess up, and that's okay. And one of the unwritten rules of friendship is you go and you apologize, they forgive you, and you can continue in relationship. Or a more formal one would be the, the relationship of marriage. When somebody gets married, they stand before other people and they make vows to not be with other people and to be with just this one person. That is a rule of the relationship. It can be broken and forgiven, but it, that, it's got to be forgiven or else the relationship doesn't go on. Relationships have rules. They have ways that this is going to work as, as, as a relationship. And our relationship with God is no different. We keep our, the rules with God, the rules that He puts in place, because we want to be able to enjoy a relationship with Him. God, God intends for us to hear these Ten Commandments in light of what He's done so we can walk in relationship with Him. Our, our obedience is not in order to achieve salvation. Our obedience is a response of faith, a response that says, I love you and I trust you, and I want to walk with you. So when we connect with God's, with God's work and we see what He's done, this is what we see in the very first commandment. Because God alone saves, trust in God alone. Because God alone saves, trust in God alone. In Exodus 20, verse 3, He says, You shall have no other gods before Me. 
What does it mean to have no other gods before God? It means to trust God above all else, to have faith in Him above all else, to put nothing in front of God. And you can see how, if you think about the salvation that God has brought for the people of Israel and He's brought for us, this is the only, the only logical way to continue in relationship with Him. And after all He's done, we are amazed by His grace. We're trusting Him alone. We treat Him as God. We treat Him as the only one who's worthy of supreme value and, and worth. We treasure Him above all else. He's the only one worthy of our highest praise and our highest worship. It's to recognize God for who He is. So this command, as all ten are, are, are a sign of grace. They are an act of grace because they tell us, they remind us of who God is. By God telling us to worship Him and Him alone, He is telling us, you're not going to find joy, you're not going to find pleasure in anything that you put above me. If you put anything above me, it will let you down. If you put God first, then you can enjoy His gifts when He gives them to you. But if you put one of those gifts above Him, it will let you down. Just, just consider the, the character of our God. Consider what He's like. And ask yourself, is anything else more worthy of worship? Is anything else more worthy of praise? Is anything else worth centering my whole life around? Then when we consider God, who created every star in the galaxies, the God who is omnipotent, meaning He's all-powerful, the God who is omniscient, He's all-knowing, the God who's omnibenevolent, He is all-loving, the God who is self-existent, the only being in the entire universe who has relied on and never will rely on anything else to exist. Have you thought about that? Everything else in the world is dependent upon something else to exist, except for God. God is fully sovereign. He is in charge of every single thing. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis. Not, not a mote of dust moves in the universe. Maybe J.I. Packer. I forget. Not a mote of dust moves without God being in control and knowing exactly what's happening. God is completely holy. There is no wrong or sin in Him, and there never will be. There is no one like our God. God being as great as He is, who would you rather... What do you want him to say? Worship something less good? Would it be loving of God for him to say, listen, uh, there's nothing better than me, but I want you to go worship you know, this tree. <laughs> no, the most loving thing for him to do is to give us the greatest that there is, which is himself. It is a gracious thing to call us, for God to call us to himself. It is, this, we think of commands as bad. This is grace. This is all grace. And it is a gift that we want to receive. We think many times we, we don't want to follow God's commands. We say, listen, I know you want to go this way, God, but I want to go this way. It would be unloving of God for him to say, hey, in this case, you trust yourself instead of me. You go your own way. That would be spiteful of him. Because you know what happens when we do that? Short, sooner or later, we end up falling. We end up stumbling. We end up crawling back to him and asking for His way, because we know it was the best way. Him first means we can put nothing above Him, no idols before Him. If you've been here, we've talked a, a fair amount about idols because it comes up all the time in God's Word, but He warns us uh, about putting anything before Him. In the Old Testament, many of the idols, as we'll see in the next commandment, were man-made things. And so we say, I don't, I'm not faced by that temptation. But we treat all kinds of things as a higher priority than God. 
I liked a list from J.I. Packer about idols, things we can make uh, as, as things in our minds that are greater than him. And he says, There are still many great gods of sex, shekels, and stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one god of self. There are other enslaving trios like pleasure and possessions and, and uh, positions. It could be football, the firm, Freemasonry, or family. Those are gods for some. Indeed, the list of gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god. And the claimants for that prerogative are legion. In the matter of this life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. Or I think it was Calvin who said the heart is, a, is an idol factory. We can take anything in this world and put it above God. We can create an idol out of anything if we put it before God. The list is almost endless. And the terrible irony of all those things is that though we want to love them and treasure them, they end up being a trap that keeps us far from God. If people are our our idols, then we live our whole lives trying to make them happy. People are great friends. People are great family. It's worth pouring your life out to seek other people's needs above your own. But people are terrible gods. Only God can be God. If you worship people as God, they will let you down. And we all will pass away. And so people don't serve as good idols, as good gods. Money, success, anything else we make in our idols is always going to lead us, let us down. Dane Ortland, uh, in his, one of his chapters about growing deeper, he talks about, uh, gave a really good question to help you decide, what, uh, help you understand your own heart and what's, what it is that you're tempted to make an idol. You know the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? He says, take this, fill in this blank. When blank, it is well with my soul. When blank. So in order for your soul to be good, in order for your heart to be content, what, what, what do you have to put in that blank? I need blank for it to be well with my soul. If anything other than God goes in the blank, it's an idol. God and God alone is who we need to be content. That hymn says, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That Christ, yes, He has, yes, He has, He has regarded my helpless estate, and He shed His own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. We're tempted to trust in far lesser things. Make them idols that we serve instead of God. So many times it's not God or it's God and. We say, yeah, I'm in church. Of course I'm going to worship God, but we worship God and something else. What's the and for you? For the people of Israel, as they heard these commands, they started with God's grace, God's deliverance, God's salvation. And for them, I mean, they're three months out of the Red Sea. I mean, they've just been there. But he says, continue to remember this. As you come to the commandments of God, continue to remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Because when you remember God's salvation, it gives you faith to trust Him for the future. And just as the exodus was a sign for the people of the Old Testament, so the cross and the resurrection is a sign for us. We put crosses around our necklaces. We put them in our churches. We put them all over as a way of remembering that God has proven once and for all He can be trusted. He saved us when we were far from Him, when we were His enemies, when we did not deserve it. And so He invites us to live our whole lives in trust of Him. Because he's brought his people through the Red Sea. He's brought his people through the cross, out of the empty tomb. He has saved us by his grace. The only question is, will you follow him? 
Will you trust him? I want you to imagine that you uh, have a job with the Air Force and you work on an airplane. And you uh, have been, been in this job for, for quite some time, the same airplane, the same crew, the same pilot, and you've done uh, hundreds of training, mis training missions, dozens uh, of different active combat missions, and, and you serve, you have the privilege of serving with one of the best pilots in the whole Air Force. Everybody in the Air Force knows about this guy, but more than just that, you, you know him personally. You know his character, you know his ability. You, every day that you go to work, you trust him with your life, and you're thankful that you've got somebody to trust. Imagine, though, you go into combat one day, and things look pretty rough. There's a lot of turbulence in the air, the enemy's firing, and it, it looks bad. And so you signal to the pilot, you're like, I think it's time for me to jump. You grab your parachute, and you're like, we got we to gotta bail. And the pilot looks in your eye and says, trust me. Trust me. Don't jump. Don't jump. Stay on this plane. We're going to make it through. You got the parachute on your back. You got to decide right here, right now, which way am I going? Am I going my gut or am I going to follow my pilot? You and I have been given an incredible, incredible testimony of a God who is all-powerful, all-faithful, all-loving. And He has saved you once, if you know Him as a Savior, and saved you every day from far, far worse things. He can be trusted. And He's saying, don't jump. Don't leave. Don't leave my will. Stay, stay in the plane. Follow me. We're going to make it. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust yourself? Or are you going to follow God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that you have parted the seas. You have opened the tomb. You have taken dead hearts and brought them to life. And God, apart from those miracles, We'd be dead, and we would have nothing. But you have given us tremendous examples, tremendous displays of your power and of your love and of your grace. And God, we have to confess with our lives right now, there is none better, there is none more worthy of our worship. And yet, so often, God, we are distracted. We are following after the things of this world, putting our hope and our trust in far lesser things. And so, God, we beg that you would bring us back to you day by day, and that we would trust in you above all. God, thank you for displaying your grace on the cross. Thank you for bringing salvation. God, empower us by the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead to follow you day by day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.